This is episode one of Musicology with the Eagle podcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the first episode of Musicology with the Eagle. Yes, you heard that right. This is the first, number one, numero uno, debut episode of this podcast. And I'm your host, the Eagle. Now, I'm not an actual eagle, but I think I just resemble one. You might be wondering what the show is going to be about and if I could perhaps give you a mission statement for it. And it's really right there in the name, Musicology. Now, that's the study of music. And that's really what we're going to be doing here. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to be a academic exercise. I'm just a music fan that just loves what he loves. I take a passion in the background and the history and all the things behind the scenes that make music interesting. And I just really want to convey that with you. Now, whether you're a big music fan like myself or an actual musician or a person that just likes music, but has just got a nine-to-five job and struggles to keep up to date with what's happening, I want to cater to all of you. And that's really what it's going to be about. It's going to be music discovery. It's not going to be necessarily a music theory power hour. I'm not a particularly well-trained musician. I only did a bit of piano and drums in high school. But I'm really going to look at the context and the stories and the influences of the artists that we love or might not even know of. Really, it's, it's about discovering new things here. And that's what we're really going to be doing. I'm open to switching things up with the content of the show. I'm uh, going to have some regular features such as in-depth discussions and talks on latest news and th- look at new releases, retrospectives on things that I've listened to recently. And mainly just to edutain. That's really what I think is what is the best way for someone to learn something about it, is to be entertained at the same time. And I'm also going to encourage a bit of audience participation, a bit of feedback, because I really want to cater to people that are listening. And if you've got any ideas about what you would like to hear in upcoming shows, I'm open to hearing it. And you can do that on my SoundCloud page or Twitter and Facebook accounts. Let me know what you think. So let's get into the first segment of the week. Now, in the past week, it's been Independence Day in the United States, July 4th, a day customary to have fireworks shows, concerts, big celebration. And it was the 20th anniversary of a very important debut album, Foo Fighters' self-titled debut. Now, they hosted a big concert in Washington, D.C. at RFK Stadium, and they had a lot of opening acts and the main event themselves, the Foo Fighters. But if you're a music fan that's been following Foo Fighters in the past couple of weeks, you might have noticed that Dave Grohl broke his leg at a concert on June the 12th. And that's pretty surprising to see that he was back on stage. And the way he did it was pretty extravagant. The guy helped design a throne of guitars to sit upon. And if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, the TV series, it resembled the Iron Throne quite a bit. And for the whole show, he was seated on that and still continued to rock out. I mean, it's incredible how the guy does it. I mean, even how the injury happened three weeks before, 
During Monkey Wrench, the second or third song of the night, he tripped and fell off the stage, broke his leg, dislocated his ankle, was taken backstage. Only 15 minutes later was he back on stage again with two medics that had propped his leg up on a chair. And he just continued to finish the gig for the next two and a half hours. Regardless of whether you're a fan of his music or whatever, you've got to have some respect for that. That's just incredible. But what it did mean, though, is that the guy is human, and they did cancel five gigs after that event. And two of those gigs were pretty big ones, one of them being at Wembley Stadium in the United Kingdom, as well as Glastonbury, headlining gig Glastonbury, the biggest festival in the world. British fans were obviously quite distraught at this, but they accepted it, that these things happen. But problem is, showing up a week later at a gig in the United States... Yeah, it didn't go down too well with British fans, but probably by that point, he could have recovered enough that he was able to perform. And actually, I saw a news article last night that stated that he's starting to heal up a lot quicker than expected. But all this just shows that Dave Grohl as a person has really been such a role model for people that just want to play music and be passionate about it. The commitment that he's shown right from the first album that they recorded. If you didn't know, he recorded that album entirely by himself in one week. Now that's everything. Vocals, guitars, drums, bass, the works. Granted, one guitar solo was recorded by a friend of his who was in the studio at the time. But other than that, this was a fully focused vision of one man. And he's really carried their legacy since then. He's been the face of the band. Members have come and gone. Um, only Nate Mendel, the bassist, has been there right since the beginning. But it's a bit similar to Bruce Springsteen in a way, that it's his band, but he's got a almost a backing group behind him. And looking at the album, the first album of theirs, Foo Fighters, self-titled, it's really just a garage recording. Uh, he even said at the time that the lyrics, that he just made them up on the spot. He didn't have enough time. I and mean, he was running around like a chicken with its head cut off, you know, recording one part here of bass, another part here for guitars. Didn't really have much time to look into the lyrics. And about a week ago, I actually listened to the album and first thought was, what the hell is he singing about? Some really bizarre lyrics there. But I suppose that's what it happens when you're just freestyling on the spot. He's also not the only musician that has played through injury or disability in a show. And I actually did a little bit of research into this. I thought this is quite fascinating. I mean, I haven't heard of many artists doing that, continuing to play after being injured. One of them also happened recently was The Edge of U2. He fell off stage at a recent gig this year for the Innocence and Experience tour that U2 are going on. And he fortunately didn't injure himself that badly. He was able to actually continue the gig. Another two artists that have fallen off stage include Steven Tyler of Aerosmith. He's actually fallen off stage twice for the same song. Yes, the song Dude Looks Like a Lady. He fell off one year apart, actually. <laughs> it's pretty bizarre. And that was quite recently, in about 2009. Back in the 70s, good old Meatloaf, the quite larger-than-life character, he also fell off stage. And although he didn't perform straight away, he continued to finish the tour with a broken leg and performing from a wheelchair. Now, some other interesting accidents that have happened on stage include James Hetfield of Metallica. He got into a bit of a pyrotechnic mishap in the early 90s, caused some serious burns on his arms and his face. That was pretty traumatic, and he actually continued the tour, not playing guitar, but just singing. And another one includes Travis Barker of Blink-182, 
when Blink-182 had broken up in the mid-2000s or went on hiatus, he had broken his arm and didn't even realize it for a good couple of weeks until his complaint to his doctor and the doctor had a checkup and said, Travis, you've broken your arm. <laughs> he continued to perform one-armed. Yes, a drummer performing one-armed. He, it was incredible that he was able to do that. But he's not the first drummer that's been able to perform one-armed. If you're aware of the hard rock band Def Leppard, their drummer in the early 80s, got into a car accident where he actually lost his arm in the process. And the recovery was difficult, but Rick Allen continued to perform with the band and they released their biggest album, actually, Hysteria, in 1987, using his drumming and electronic drum kit to play along with that. Yeah, so give it a look if you haven't seen a picture of Dave Grohl on his Dave of Thrones. <laughs> And it was quite an amazing bit of news this past week. Moving on to our next segment is a new release from this past week. If you've heard of the indie pop duo Beach House, they have a new single out. It's called Sparks. And it's going to be off their new album, Depression Cherry, that's coming out on 28th of August. Now, if you haven't heard of them before, they're a bit of a misnomer. Beach House do not really make sunny, bright, cheery music. They're actually quite gloomy and sort of like a chamber pop sort of style of music, but still very beautiful and intoxicating and mysterious. And their new song, Sparks, marks a lovely shift in sound, a gradual but still significant shift in their sound from the indie pop of their last album, Bloom, in 2012, to a, a much more bolder approach in their music. And this is mainly down to the use of vocal loops and a more guitar-heavy sound. Now, the sort of sound that they've had on previous albums has been a sort of very dreamy, looping guitar, which kind of just gently carries you along. But in their song Sparks, it actually starts off with this odd vocal loop that you just can't quite place what she's saying. It sounds like these wordless sighs. But actually, the band has said that it was taken from a sound check that they did at a gig in Bristol, UK. And the sound technician was just playing around with the PA system before the gig and suddenly captured a little bit of lead singer Victoria Legrande's vocals and started playing it through this looper. And immediately the band said, hold your horses, keep that. We want to keep it and use it. And the band even held up their iPhones to record it and possibly that was used in the final version. But either way, it begins the song on quite a different tone to their previous works because immediate this crunchy, smeared guitar comes through. It's really jarring, full of distortion and like a claustrophobic sort of sequence of notes and that just gets you excited because there's a bit of chaos in the mix here. And it kind of recalls a sort of shoegaze sound. Now, shoegaze, the genre, if you haven't heard of it, it's a genre that was a subgenre of alternative rock in the late 80s, early 90s. Basically, the music press called it that because the artists were sort of very detached from the crowd. They fiddled a lot with their effects pedals and were always looking down at their shoes. So just like how grunge was given a name by the press, the same thing happened with shoegaze. It was a very psychedelic sort of genre. Lyrics were not really emphasized that much. And one of the key bands of that era, My Bloody Valentine, was the definitive sound of it. You know, a very distorted mix of guitars and drums and all that sort of modern day psychedelic music. 
And they've kind of taken a little bit of that sound into their new song, Sparks. It's really noisier than what we've come to expect from the band. And it also still has the hallmarks of their previous albums. We've got a bit of an old organ part that sort of just underpins the song. And also in the second half, it opens up into a more reverb-heavy, intricate, harmonious collapse of sound after the initial chaotic opening. As a fan of their music before, I couldn't help but just put, have a smile on my face when I just saw how they've changed their sound like that. And it really gets me quite excited for the new album because in an interview that they had with Bob Boiler of NPR Radio's All Songs Considered podcast, Victoria was said that the first time she heard Alex, the guitarist, play that a sequence of notes on his guitar, she said she had never heard him play like that before. And it just gave her an excitement that translated to her vocal performance and just informed the song. So really, I'd suggest you give it a listen and yeah it will be a interesting album depression cherry <laughs> bit of an odd name but it could be quite a invigorating experience now the next uh, segment that we have is a bit of a retrospective i like to do this with my music i collect a lot of music store it normally on my ipod i've got like about fifteen thousand songs or so and I like kind of looking back at what I've collected over the years and frequently trying to re-listen to what I've had before that I haven't listened to in a while. And one of these artists that I've sort of neglected and had a bit of an ambivalent approach to in the past is Fleet Foxes. Now, they're a kind of indie folk group from Seattle in the United States that sort of mixes Baroque pop chamber pop similar to beach house but in a much more folky direction to create a really intoxicating blend of vocals and guitars and and just it sounds like like uh the late 60s pop you know when you had the the good old days of of bob dylan neil young beach boys when they're at their that their prime you know that sort of um they had a real sense of like it was it was orchestral sort of approach to things, and that's really what they're they're about. And I've sort of known some of their their songs over the years, and and I've listened a couple of times, but never really paid attention much to their acoustic folk. And they've only released two albums, and one was their self-titled debut, Fleet Foxes, from 2008, and then they had a follow-up in 2011, Helplessness Blues, and both these albums. Looking back, it made me just realize how similar they are to another two groups that I'm a very big fan of, Band of Horses and My Morning Jacket. And it's really down to the vocals. Lead singer Robin Pecknold of Fleet Foxes has just got this amazing southern-accented voice, it seems, But even though he's from Seattle, <laughs> or the band's from Seattle. But it just carries every song. It just cuts through the foliage of galloping beats and lush sparkling guitars and odd instruments that they've used. I mean, some of the instruments on their second album include a water harp, a marxophone, Tibetan singing balls. I mean, they, these guys really love to experiment with their sound and uh, just touch on so many different sort of styles of folk music and with lyrics that capture a sense of adventure, talking of mountains and birds in particular, and family and death. It's really, it's quite a experience. And I currently live in Doha, in Qatar, in the Middle East. 
one of the flattest countries in the world. It's a desert. And to hear such imagery, it's, it makes me long for pine trees and forests and lakes and places like that because it's such a dense experience. And I really recommend listening particularly to their first album, Fleet Foxes. Song highlights, I would say, would be White Winter Hymnal. It's probably one of the most well-known songs. Other songs would be He Doesn't Know Why, Ragged Wood, which is sort of folk rock. And one of my favorite songs by them has to be Oliver James. It's the last song on their first album. It's almost completely a cappella, and the whole band can really sing. What I was interested to discover this past week is that the drummer that joined them after their first album, his name was Josh Tillman, and... He actually is quite a musician in his own right, and he left after recording their second album and went on to reinvent himself as Father John Misty. I've listened to some of his music as well in preparing for this show, and great singer. And it's amazing how much talent can be in one band, and you kind of don't feel so bad when a band splits up and they go on to do great things other than that. A good example, a comparison really with Fleet Foxes would be Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Those were four artists that in their own right had multiple solo albums, even albums together with each other. But when you put them together, it was like lightning in a bottle. I seriously recommend giving them a listen. They'll just brighten your day. I thoroughly believe that. And if you're a person that appreciates album covers, both their album covers are really intricate affairs. And their debut album had a painting, like a Renaissance painting. Really weird if you start looking at it closely. Some really odd things going on in there. I really think they're a complete package. And the sort of scope of their work, it's comparable to something like Beach Boys, their Pet Sounds album in the mid-60s, where it goes beyond just a couple of acoustic guitars and some guys singing some harmonies. I mean, they really have a, a sense of craftsmanship with their music. And I'm happy to say that I was mistaken to ignore them and not give them the attention they deserved over the past few years. Well, that's about all the time we have for this week. If you're listening to this on your morning commute or whilst washing the dishes or however people consume podcasts nowadays. I want to thank you for tuning in and supporting this podcast. I look forward to this journey of music discovery and discussion in upcoming shows. I am The Eagle, and this has been Musicology with The Eagle. See you next time.